The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you. On June 4, 1957, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said this, We had to make it clear that nonviolent resistance is not a method of cowardice. It does resist. It is not a method of stagnant passivity and deadening complacency. The nonviolent resistor is just as opposed to the evil that he is standing against as the violent resistor but he resists without violence. This method is non-aggressive physically, but strongly aggressive spiritually. And he went on to say, another thing that we had to get over was the fact that the nonviolent resistor does not seek to humiliate or defeat an opponent, but to win his friendship and understanding. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation and the creation of a beloved community. It is merely a means to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor, but the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. In today's reading from Matthew, we are confronted by what is known as a hard saying. Well, actually, a lot of hard sayings. We are being told to turn the other cheek, to not resist an evildoer, to give more than you are asked to give, to never say no to someone who wants something from you. And not only are we to love our enemies, but we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So it would seem that because these sayings are so hard to the point of being almost inscrutable, we live our lives saying, yeah, 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 <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, can't do it, though. Nobody really expects us to do that, right? But we are here, I think, because in our hearts we know that Jesus is on to something, even if we can't quite figure out what or how, but because we want to make sense of these hard sayings. This world that we live in cries out to us for a new way of being and a new way of thinking, a new way of confronting the world in a way 
that is more productive than the way we have been dealing with it up until now. Somebody needs to help us think out of the box. And doggone it, these hard sayings have been sitting right here in front of us for an awfully long time. So maybe it's time that we unpack it before it's too late. Over and over again, we have responded, both communally and individually, to our perceived threats and to actual assaults on our persons and way of life in a way that is antithetical to Jesus' admonishment to us today. Through the centuries, that very passage has been used as a cudgel to keep people passive and disengaged. Over the centuries, we have also ignored the implications on the grounds that God knows that we couldn't possibly do this, so thank God that we're already forgiven. But over and over, we have been given glimpses that maybe Jesus was right. Maybe our unwillingness to try it has just been a failure of nerve. Martin Luther King Jr. was getting to the heart of it when he spoke in 1957. We have been tasked with building the beloved community. We have been tasked with seeking reconciliation. We have been tasked with finding redemption. Perhaps some of you read the article in the New York Times this past week by Phil Clay about his experience as a soldier in Iraq. And he describes the day that a Marine was brought in to the surgical bay with life-threatening wounds from a sniper attack. And despite the heroic efforts of the surgical team, the Marine died. Soon after, the Iraqi sniper was brought in for treatment, also with life-threatening wounds, and the same surgical team went to work. He says, they stabilized their enemy and pumped him full of American blood, donated from the walking blood bank of nearby Marines, and the sniper lived. And then they put him on a helicopter to go to a hospital for follow-up care, and one of the Navy nurses was assigned to be his flight nurse. He says, he told me later of the strangeness of sitting in the back of a helicopter, watching over his enemy lying peacefully unconscious, doped up on painkillers, while he kept checking the sniper's vitals, his blood pressure, his heartbeat, a heartbeat that was steady and strong, thanks to the gift of blood from the Americans that this insurgent would have liked to kill. And I wonder if that Navy nurse thought about what he was doing in terms of a moral choice. Alone in the back of a helicopter, he could have perhaps fudged a bit on his treatment of the enemy, maybe waited a bit too long as he watched his blood pressure drop, maybe slowed the flow of life-sustaining fluids, maybe allowed the pain level to increase to intolerable levels as punishment for his murderous act. But he didn't. Maybe he was just following orders, or maybe he was acting, as Martin Luther King would say, spiritually aggressively. Maybe he heard the words of George Washington echoing in his head when Washington ordered all the soldiers of the Continental Army to sign a copy of rules intended to limit harm to civilians and ensure that their conduct respected what he called the rights of humanity, so that their restraint justly secured to us the attachment of all good men. Or maybe 
He remembered the words of Jesus that he learned at his church in his childhood that were now seared into his bones, that he loved his enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Maybe at that moment he wouldn't have said that he loved the man in front of him, but he committed himself to do the loving thing, which was to save this man's life. And I think about that a lot these days as we're being told day after day to fear the other. And we see that by our actions and policies, the other is learning to fear us. I was reading a story by a Quaker writer, Catherine Whitmire. She's written a couple of books of compilations of Quaker writings that I love very much, and I used her book in the class that I taught at the School for Deacons. And she tells of two Quaker brothers living in a farming settlement in the 1700s, where the fear and hostility between the homesteaders and their Native American neighbors was escalating. And the Quaker brothers, staunch pacifists, refused to carry firearms. But they were aware, as they walked through their fields, of being watched from the surrounding forests. And their non-Quaker neighbors were growing increasingly fearful and were arming themselves and advised their Quaker neighbors to do the same. Finally, one of the brothers succumbed and decided to start carrying a weapon. He didn't intend to use it, but he felt that the sight of it would frighten away the would-be attackers. The first day he carried it, he was killed in an ambush. And the friends later learned that the natives had been watching the brothers for some time. And when they saw one of them carrying a gun, they felt that it indicated his willingness to use it against them. So the gun, carried out of fear, instigated the violence that cost the brother his life. So later in that same New York Times article, Clay talks about meeting Eric Fair, a veteran who had worked as an army uh, Arabic linguist and later as a contractor at Abu Ghraib. Fair later wrote a book called Consequences about his experiences. And he told Clay that in the chaos at Abu Ghraib, the feeling was that everything was life or death, and that he and others began crossing lines, moral lines and personal lines, where it became clear that he wasn't treating people in his interrogations like human beings. And he remembers once, early on, when his abusiveness yielded some life-saving information, and he felt justified in continuing their use. But they never again yielded the same result. He said, in 2003, thousands of Iraqi soldiers had begun surrendering to the United States, confident that they'd be treated well. That's thousands of soldiers that we didn't have to fight to the death because of the moral reputation of our country. But then Abu Ghraib changed things. The leaks of American mistreatment of detainees was the single most important motivating factor convincing jihadists to wage war. And General Stanley McChrystal said, in my experience, we found that nearly every first-time jihadist claimed Abu Ghraib had first jolted him to action. Thus, our moral reputation, or lack thereof, had started killing American soldiers. 
It would seem that so often our fear of the other leads us to think that doing what Jesus commands us to do today is folly. It is this fear that makes it seem reasonable that we should keep out Syrian refugees who are fleeing a brutal regime, or those from countries who have been decimated by our ill-conceived war and its aftermath, or that mothers who arrived here as children should be ripped from their own children for lack of paperwork, or that sanctuary cities should be stripped of their federal funding, even though a good working relationship with their community partners and law enforcement is essential to keeping us safe. Or that our draconian and overpopulated prison system will yield law-abiding citizens upon their return to society, and their victims will feel that they have received justice, when efforts at restorative justice programs are far more effective in achieving that end and are much more aligned with our gospel ethic. Do not resist an evildoer depends much on what we call resistance. If resistance means violence for violence, we find ourselves walking a very dark road. Martin Luther King also said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And what if the evildoer is us? What if we choose the darkness and hate that keeps others oppressed while we ourselves thrive? What then? Are Jesus' words still folly? We're going to have many opportunities in the coming days and weeks to confront the evil both in our society and ourselves. How we respond to this hard saying will determine much about whether or not we are serious about building the beloved community, or how serious we are about our own redemption. Which brings us to our last hard saying. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The idea that we're actually being asked to be perfect seems so ludicrous as to defy any attempt to actually be perfect. But as so often happens with scripture, the bug is in the translation. Perfect is translated from the word telos, which is less about moral perfection and more about reaching one's intended target. It's more about our intended goal and our determination to reach that end, to be persistent in being the person and community that God intends us to be. I'm sure you all saw the t-shirts that have sprung up with the she persisted meme on it in response to Senator Mitch McConnell saying about Senator Elizabeth Warren, she was warned, and she was given an explanation, and nevertheless, she persisted. So whatever you think about that situation or the people, those words raised a lot of hackles among women who, through the millennia, have persisted despite being told by men to shut up and sit down. Carolyn Lewis points out the number of times women in the New Testament, not to mention the Hebrew scriptures, persisted despite societal norms. The woman at the well, the hemorrhaging woman who dared touch Jesus' garment, his mother telling him to turn water into wine, Mary taking her seat at Jesus' feet, the woman searching for her lost coin. It goes on and on. They persisted. 
and so must we. We have a beloved community to build. We may falter, but we need to get up and keep persisting. We must be persistent in becoming the persons that we were created to be. We are persistent when we come here for nourishment for the struggle ahead. We come to our common table to be fed and transformed, or in the words of St. Augustine, receive who you are and then go out and become what you have received. That's it. So let's go out and live our hard sayings because there's a lot of work to be done. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.